0: Yeah, look, you, you didn't learn how to talk by learning all the things about the English language before you uttered your first word. And you didn't, you know, you didn't learn the mechanics of music and the theory before you sang your first song. Now, you heard a song and you sang it and your body just, you tried it. And maybe it sounded like crap to start with, but then you started singing. Where are the answers
1: I see? Where I need. Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Plain Ordinary Dragon podcast. We're so glad you're here today. Thank you for spending some time with us, that most precious resource. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, We all do. So many people come through our lives as we travel along. Some are there for a moment and then they're gone. And some stay in our lives. Today we get to talk with Rob Splat Appleblatt about his journey. For me, Rob is one of those guys who stays. When Rob and I first met, it was at the Steve Earle songwriting camp, Camp Copperhead. We were roommates. And we connected quickly, even though I think my sleep machine kept him up during the precious few hours you get to sleep at camp when we said goodbye that first year he gave me this cool board game for my boys to play with when i got back home it was a game he created we still play with it today okay okay he's a good guy but why should i listen to him you ask well he's really good at adapting he doesn't care for me saying he's reinvented himself because he is still in the process of living he's not done but he pivots very well. With a tough time in school, not really leading him anywhere he wanted to go, and a distaste for wearing suits, his journey is one of self-discovery, seizing opportunity, and overcoming fear. Oh, did I mention he's got a CD out? I hope you give this interview a good listen. There are some real gems in this conversation that could be game-changers for you or somebody you know. So, without any more talking... Here's my friend, Rob. Well, thank you for being on the show, for coming on the podcast and hanging out with us today.
0: My pleasure, brother. My pleasure.
1: In the intro, I told people kind of how we got to know each other. But uh, just to reiterate it, you know, we were roommates at uh, Steve Earls Camp Copperhead uh, a number
0: of years ago. Fate brought us together, Elliot.
1: It did, didn't it? Tell me a little bit about uh, where are you from originally?
0: Yeah, good place to start. Uh, I I guess let's go way back, El. <laughs> let's
1: uh, do
0: it. I was born on an Air Force base uh, when my father was stationed in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. Um, he was in the Air Force. He was a mechanic fixing airplanes and uh, lived in a trailer on the base, so I'm told. And uh, you know, so I was born there, and I, I'm not sure exactly how long we lived there. I was probably there. Uh, six months or something like that before my mom took me back to uh, to Whitestone, Queens. Um, but the stories go that, you know, um, on the Air Force Base there, there were rats that would somehow get into the trailer uh, walls. And so my mother would just listen all night to like tap, 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 all on the tin roof and everything. And I was born, they didn't have a crib, so they uh they had a dresser, and so maybe this was common back in nineteen sixty eight or whatever, but you know the bottom drawer on the dresser basically you know you take all the clothes out and put a little blankie in there, and that was my crib so I lived in a trailer uh in a desk in a in a dresser drawer <laughs> with rats uh, crawling in the walls of the of the trailer yeah, after that you know I grew up in uh first few years of my life in Whitestone queens
1: how was uh how, how was childhood for you? I mean, I, I think it's safe to say you come from fairly humble beginnings. I mean, I find it fascinating that, that your parents actually used a, a, a dresser with a drawer. I mean, that's I uh, I haven't heard something like that in a long time. So that's kind of, that's kind of interesting, but so how, how was, uh, you know, how, how were your formative years, uh, in you know grade school and high school, yeah. what was that like for you?
0: Well, for me, I feel like the first uh, i don't know six, seven years of my life was basically a fog, a foggy blur. Um, I have a learning disability that uh, I realized later in life, so i I spent you know the first bunch of years, as far back as I can remember, really just having being lost, just lost, whatever it was, going to school, being in class, trying to Understand, comprehend what was going on around me, picking up on cues that other kids picked up on that I seemed to not pick up on. You know, I I could remember just faint memories of doing homework with my mother and me not getting it and uh, and just not being able to express yourself at you know six seven years old. And I, I just remember my hand not being able to grip the pencil as she was you know yelling at me to. Why don't I understand this, you know? And so there's little things like that stick in my mind and, and carried with me, you know, through this day I suffer from, uh, from ADD. I spent the first 50 years of my life not on medication and learning how to uh, come up w- with coping mechanisms, you know, and, and that took a long time to, to get into place before I had, I probably started putting those in place when I was about 25 years old. And so, yeah, so I spent the younger part of my days in a fog and slowly coming out of the fog and learning how my mind works, uh, which is very different from uh, anyone I've ever met. So school was difficult for me. You know, I never felt like I fit in. Certain social situations were weird for me, never quite felt like I really fit in. Hey, everybody's got something. And, uh, you know, I learned from from a lot of it that, uh, you know, these boxes that were put in through our entire life, whatever it is, you know, you grow up, you go to school, you know, you play sports, you uh, go to college, you know, the, the, all these things that they sort of put you in. I just felt like I was never really ready for those things or never learned in the proper way. Uh, I found out quickly that I guess if I'm not interested in something, I just, I won't, I, I can't, learn it that well. However, the, the good side is, is that when I am interested in something, all of a sudden I come alive and uh, I get really sort of into that thing and passionate about it and I sort of attack it. And so I've learned that, you know, I've certainly seen the negatives of my ADD, but the but the, there's so many benefits to it. And you know, everyone harps on the negatives, you know, but the benefits for me is I get I do get hyper focused on stuff when I'm interested in it, and then I I become good at those things and successful and they make me happy and so over time instead of trying to do uh, go the same route that people go to oh you have to go to school to become this or whatever I've I've sort of adopted my own um, my own ways of doing things that have just worked out you know a lot of people you know they want to learn something go read a book know how to do it you know. Here's a perfect example. You and I met at songwriting camp. Prior to that songwriting camp, I knew I wanted to be a songwriter uh, for a few years before that. I tried to read a book on songwriting, got nothing out of it, and I actually took a songwriting course online and failed it (laughs) and quit. And something about going to uh, Copperhead and meeting you there. And, you know, that sort of. and, and it wasn't instructional, you know this. Copperhead doesn't say, "Hey, this is how you write songs. Uh-huh. you know here read this book, let me give you a class. It wasn't like that at all. It was sitting and listening to artists who have been successful, talking about their experiences. and I was like a sponge there. All of a sudden it just it just turned on. I could identify with what Steve Earle was saying. Steve Earle as he was talking about his process, I was like, man, some of those things, I was like, man, I do that. I didn't even know that was something, but I do that. Jackie Green, you know, talking about his process, same thing. Wow, you do that? I do that. I didn't even know that was a part of the process, but when I left Copperhead, boom, I started to figure out what my songwriting process would be, and it took a little bit of time, but in terms of learning it, I get the most bang for my buck by listening to people, talking to people versus learning in a course or a book uh, like most people do.
1: It's an amazing story based on the people that I've interviewed on this podcast. uh, Actually, you kind of fit in with them because I've heard very similar uh, types of of stories where people have had to overcome learning disabilities. Uh, You know, I, I didn't even know I had one until I was in my 30s. A majority of the people I've interviewed have had either dyslexia or some sort of of learning disability. I find it fascinating that you were able to find a way to put systems in place for yourself to cope with that unmedicated.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly uh, very weary of jumping on any medication without uh, really doing all the research and and. Finding out if it really is right for you, and I resisted medication. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm on medication now, so I spent 50 years of my life not on medication, <laughs> and I was successful. I've had a bunch of successes in my life not on medication, but you know, recently I went on it. It just works for me now. It's night and day. Uh, That's so, awesome. So That's it, great. It's to right hear. for me now, and I and I feel it, and I'm I'm just hyper focused, you know. But you know, hey, throw me a book with uh, in front of me still with a topic that I'm not interested. I'm, I'm kind of certain I would, <laughs> it wouldn't help me there, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I hear you. So grade school, high school, that was kind of challenging, especially with the learning systems and so forth. And you said something that I kind of wanted to touch on. You said that you kind of knew that you always wanted to write songs and be a songwriter. Did that manifest itself during those high school and college years or... It was just something that you looked at from afar and went, man, music is, is like life to me. I'd love to be able to do that, but.
0: Well, I, I have to say that I, I certainly lived a musically sheltered life, and we could get into that a little bit more if you'd like. But I picked up the guitar, I guess when I was in um, junior high school, my one of my best friends lived down the street, played drums. You can hear him playing his drums from down the street and uh, my mother was friends with his mother and so because uh, Tommy was playing drums, my mother said, hey, do you want to play guitar? I was like, yeah, sure. I didn't really want to Uh, but she got a guitar. I think she borrowed Tommy had a guitar and so Signed up for lessons, and I had a teacher come, this nice woman, and we sat down, and she did what a normal guitar teacher, brought the Mel Bay book, and told me, you know, there's a quarter note, half note, you know, and filled up a whole page or two of notes, and then she left. I couldn't make any sense out of what she wrote down anyway at that point, not knowing I was ADD at that point, but I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. Uh, You know, and and then it was time for the next lesson, and I was like, is she coming, and my mom was like, she said she can't come anymore. she's getting divorced. and so that was the extent of my uh, music as as uh, guitar playing as as a kid. And then I picked it back up in college. One of my fraternity brothers was really good, and so I I went with him and and then I've had a few other teachers through the years. but again, ADD got in the way. It was like, sit down with somebody they write a page or two of notes on it and then you know it all seemed to make sense when they were teaching it to me but then you go home and try and learn it and it just i just didn't get it you know and i and i think in hindsight it was just uh too much information too much too soon i mean if i were to teach guitar these days i would teach it to somebody in a completely different manner i wouldn't just lay out scales and uh variations of scales and you know complex jazz chords and all these things I mean look you got to crawl before you walk you got to walk before you run <laughs> and there's no sense in uh, in just blasting all this fear. I even went to the New York guitar school or it was some prestigious school. I went there for, and the pattern was the same. I'd go, I'd take lessons. I'd quit after a few lessons and then drop the guitar and not touch it for a few years. And then I would just have the desire to do it again. And the same thing. So through, you know, I graduated college in 1990. So I picked up the guitar a little bit before that. And so, you know, I guess I've have over 20 years of playing the guitar Maybe five or six times I took lessons and and you know quit for a few years. So it, it really just was when I started to just pick it up every single day and just play some general chords and slowly start to look at some relationships between the notes and come up. and then, of course, YouTube and uh, you know the internet really helps you find things. But it wasn't until I really taught myself how to play at my own pace when things you know started happening.
1: I'm interested, especially after listening to you tell that story, how would you go about teaching someone knowing what you know now?
0: Well, I mean, if someone's interested in learning guitar, it's, it's because they have some sort of dream in their head. You know, I want to be standing in front of it. I want to do this. You know what I mean? Uh, the desire is probably not to learn how to read musical notation or scales. You know, like me, it's like, you know and my hero Bruce Springsteen you want to get into uh in, into music cuz you want to strap that guitar around your neck and you want to play and, and you want to and you want to get girls i mean that's kind of the the young kids dream um and and i always had that dream as as a, as a young age too but it was just very disconnected I, I didn't know how to get there and all that and um but if i were to teach somebody today i would say you know right away just tell me the music you listen to let's let's talk about the music you listen to what do you like about this what do you like about that okay and then there are some basics like learn your musical alphabet i would just sit there and a flat a b flat b these are the notes you know and totally separate to that I would show them just how to press down on the on the frets and make clean notes and just do finger exercises. So you got the mechanics of the finger exercises on one side. You got to do that all the time. And then slowly, you know, you teach them the major chords. You know, the minute they can put two or three chords together, the minute they do that, that's when you start playing a song together and you work on the timing and you you don't stray from that. I think you work on that one thing and then all the different aspects of it. You know the changing of the chords, until they can play them. And and that's how I think you're going to make progress versus shifting around. Okay. You know what I mean? There's no reason to learn more than three chords to start. But when you get those three chords, we need to make some music. We need to play something. We need to bang in the guitar. We got to learn how to play in time. I think that's
1: great. I'll quickly relay how I learned how to play guitar. One of my non-guitar playing friends, uh, one of my fairly non-musical friends in regards to producing music or making music, told me that he had a friend and his friend told him the best way to learn guitar was to learn some chord shapes and just play nonsense until you can kind of get a rhythm to it. That was... Ironically enough, the best advice anyone could have given me because I'd gone and taken some lessons from people that are still my friends today that are phenomenal guitarists, but I just didn't get the notes and the, and the rests and the half and trying to read music and play and all those kinds of things. Now, granted, I picked up some bad habits because I'm self-taught as well, but I, I never would have continued to play if I didn't enjoy a part of it enough. continue on.
0: Yeah, look, you you didn't learn how to talk by learning all the things about the English language before you uttered your first word. And you didn't, you know, you didn't learn the mechanics of music and the theory before you sang your first song. And, you know, you heard a song and you sang it and your body just, you tried it. And maybe it sounded like crap to start with, but then you started singing. And so I, I look at music as the same way. Like, yeah, get sloppy, get messy. Let me, let's me let play some stuff. And, you know, it'll, it will just improve. And then at a later date, you want to learn the theory. I mean, literally, you know, I go to these lessons and I get notes. And on page two, they're like Aeolian, Mixolydian. Like, they're giving me all these things. It's like, are you crazy? I don't even know how to play chord yet. Why are you teaching me this right now? Yeah, man. Come on. It's like you're learning chemistry, you know, uh, in first grade. Come on.
1: So, uh, college. You didn't go into the music industry at that point. You, what did you do? Where did you Where did you go from college?
0: Well, back up to college. You know, grew up in Whitestone, Queens, for six, seven years or whatever. We moved way out to Long Island to uh, Lake Ronkonkoma, and uh, that's where I, from elementary school through the middle of high school, I lived. And then we moved to a town called Sayoset, which is closer to Manhattan, the city. You know, uh, not it's not so close to the city, but compared to Lake Ronkonkoma, it's like halfway in between. Tell me again what the question what you were saying? Oh, I was just
1: curious. We'd gotten to kind of into college, and um, we talked a lot about the the musical piece. I'm curious about some of the other pieces. Like, did you go to, to college for music or business or something like that? And then, how, what was your evolution on your journey, really?
0: So like I was talking about earlier about you know the normal things people do go to school, go to go to high school, college, I don't think I was really ready for college when it was time to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no clue what I wanted to, what you know I wanted to be when I grew up. And I think that's pretty common and typical of some people, you know, some people know they want to be a doctor and everything. I certainly could have benefited from not going to school and maybe traveling the world. Or just I was shel- I lived a very sheltered sort of childhood and I needed to just I think learn and, and in my own way, and maybe sort of traveling somewhere uh, would have been better than just forcing me into school. Grades were never that do good. Do you
1: want to talk about the sheltered piece of that at all, um, and clarify or not?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I don't mind. I, I think the shelteredness has a lot to do with just my ADD and living in my own little world, you know. Which, uh, but you know, on the music sheltered side, um, you know, I remember being in junior high school and I remember seeing somebody's notebook. And on their notebook, I guess they drew all these rock and roll band logos. You know, you remember what the ACDC logo looked yeah. like, or Led Zeppelin, or and I just remember staring at this guy's book and it just was covered. The whole front page was covered with this beautiful artwork of all these bands. And I loved it. I didn't know why I loved it. I didn't even know the music. Um, but you know, I remember looking at this Fog hat logo and I was like, man, that's cool. The band must be great. It's almost like liking a sports team because you like the colors and the and the logo on their helmet. It was very much like that, sure. And uh, but the problem was, I my parents never really bought me a lot of music back then. It was it was albums and cassettes, but somebody did give us a record player. Uh, my parents just liked '80s disco and stuff, which as a kid I just inherently hated that because they liked it. But it was on all the time. So Barry Manilow, the Bee Gees, all that stuff was on and stirring in my mind, even though on the surface I was like I. I hate that stuff, but uh, somehow I, I was able to get myself Pink Floyd, The Wall, and I was able to get ACDC, Back in Black, and For Those About to Rock, and Ozzy, uh, maybe Blizzard of Oz, it might might have been in the early 80s or whatever. Yeah, so I had a few of these, uh, maybe five albums, and I just listened to them over and over again because I I didn't have anything else, over and over and over again. Other than that, that was my whole musical childhood up until uh, probably 1985, when I was introduced to Bruce Springsteen.
1: And I assume that was a changing moment for you, that there was something special about that.
0: What was special about that for me is that at that time, when I was telling you I lived out in Lake Ronkonkoma, which is way out on Long Island, in the middle of high school, between 10th and 11th grade, my parents decided to move us to Syosset. And pulling a kid out of high school, when you had your comfort zone and your friends and just transitioning schools in the middle of that was very difficult, you know, for me. And as a teenager, you know, you start, you've got hormones raging, you're, you know, you're feeling like you want to do something with your life, but you have no idea what it is. So Springsteen, you know, he released Born in the USA in 1984, and that album... Well, I bought it on uh, on cassette, and I just listened to it over and over and over again. And um, I mean, I could probably listen to that easily a, a few thousand times. And the music, I just connected to everything Bruce sort of had to say there, you know. And uh, you know, you got the lyric sheet, and so it's very different than listening to music today. You know, my kids listen to music; they barely listen to a song, uh, an entire song, never mind an album, because there's almost no albums today. But I was very into listening to the whole thing from start to finish, reading all the lyrics, and I gotta tell you, to this day, you know, if I go back to any of those albums that I've listened to a million times, I'll still hear something different every time I listen to it, and it, I guess, you know, with all the different instrumentation and the lyrics, I, I get something out of that music no matter how many times I listen to it. So, yeah. So those are that that was my sort of my music yeah. you know musical experience. Yeah, it, it is very different listening to
1: music now than it was when I was a kid as well, uh, because you know back then you went and bought a cassette uh, or or uh, you know. a a long playing album either one and you looked at the liner notes the liner notes were like your lifeline to anything that you could glean from not only the lyrics but about the artists too you know and you know who played on this record who produced this record and you know and you had the lyrics there that you could actually you knew 100% what the band had put out and so it was and this was well before MTV came and went with music videos and and it was a very different time Time. I'm kind of reminded of Dave Van Ronk. Uh, I listened to the mayor of McDougal Street. He talks about how they learned in the, in the 50s and the 60s. He said that his he was a, kind of steeped in jazz. And his jazz teacher, or his music teacher, would put on these jazz albums and tell them that their job was to listen. Like, that was how they learned, you know? You didn't have all of the shortcuts that we have today. I think that there is a very important piece to being able to really listen to the music. And you're right, I discover stuff uh, to this day on albums where I'm like, oh, I never heard that hi-hat work before. And I don't know if it's because my sound system's better now or I just wasn't listening.
0: Yeah, and our attention span has just gotten, as a society, has just gotten shorter and shorter and overloaded, you know, with great point. stuff. I mean, the internet is just bombarding you with information, I mean, way too much to consume and you have access to it all the time. And so, I mean, it's even hard to have a real conversation with somebody these days, you know, and have their full attention. I mean, COVID's helped it a little bit because now people have too room to breathe to sit and talk to one another. But, you know, musically, I still uh, i still love, and, and what I would do is I'd pick up an album and I would just go and listen to it and absorb every little aspect of it You know, until I beat it to death. And only then would I move on to another album. And in Springsteen's case, so I picked them up in 85. And after I just devoured that thing a million times, I went down all the way back to uh, uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, which was number one, and absorbed that. And then, boom, you know, uh, E Street Shuffle, I think, was the second one. And then, you know, again, after a thousand times of that, you know, boom, the next one and, and the next one. And so, uh, and I did that with him all the way through and I got current and just kept going with his music. And so to me, I'd rather sort of do that than pick like six or seven artists and, and bounce around. You know, I, I want to know the full story. I want to know the full picture. I don't want it in piecemeal. And even when I made my own album uh, last year, I, I just did the same thing you know I mean I had people telling me like oh you don't you don't release albums these days you know you don't need to just boom one song one song. I was like no 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 I I have a story to tell (laughs) yeah I want to tell my story you know
1: yeah and we're going to talk about that album um for multiple reasons here in, in a bit but I am curious so after you know when you went into the workforce and I know you've had some success there what did you end up doing
0: Uh, so work-wise, like, so when I, I went, I ended up going to, um, well, let's go back to the after high school thing. So grade school was never my thing. Test taking was never my thing. I just never did well at it. So I actually went to a community college after school because I didn't know what I wanted to do and my grades weren't really that great. I actually, you know, focused as much as I could on that one year of community college and I got my grades up to a sort of A, B zone from just being like a c student you know and uh that got me into suny albany state university of new york at albany which back then was a you know a decent school to get in so i went in as a as a transfer student my sophomore year so i spent four years there but still uh, you know never felt connected to anything they didn't really have any um tv program or something which i probably would have gravitated towards so but i majored in communications i minored in theater the theater part was, was fun for me. The communications part was all textbook learning. And so I, I, that really just didn't interest me. I couldn't, couldn't put that to practical use in any way. And so I got out of school, you know, joined a fraternity there. I mean, I did all the things that You're supposed to do, and I had fun doing it. But um, in terms of getting anything out of it, in terms of an education, look, I got the degree, but again, there was nothing there that that I was interested in. So after school, I said, You know, I I know I want to make some money. I don't know what I want to do. I think you can make money in real estate. Let me uh, get my real estate license. So I went and found a class, you know, get your real estate license in two or three weeks or whatever it was. And, you know, I I just pushed myself to read the books and study. And, you know, still very hard for me, but I I got the license. Um, And then immediately started working in a building in in Queens, just showing apartments. Uh, Worked there for probably six months, but was absolutely miserable. And the main reason I was miserable um, was wearing a suit every day. And I, I just found out real quick that wearing a suit, I was just not meant to wear a suit. It feels very constricting and constraining on me. Uh, same thing with the watch, I've never won a watch in my life. I feel like it's a handcuff, and so I can't explain it. it and, and it means a lot, like if I ever wear a suit, I just wanna rip it off and roll in the dirt like a like a dog after a bath. I mean, that's it's the only, <laughs> only way I can express it. I think I have one suit today, and I've had it for the past 20, 30 years. I wear it to all the funerals, bar mitzvahs, and <laughs> weddings. <laughs> and it is so out of style. Yeah, some people are just not meant for that, and I'm not, you know. So, uh, in a conversation with my mother in the uh, maybe 19 mid 90, uh, 90 mid 90, approaching 91, she said, "Well, you know, I have a friend that works in TV. His kid works in TV. Do you want to work in TV?" And I was like, "Sure." So that got me an interview at a small little post production editing house in Manhattan. I got a job answering telephones for. A whopping $13,000 a year in salary. Yeah, so that was sort of paying your dues. And, you know, the beauty of it is that I would go to work uh, in jeans and a T-shirt. I got to see sort of exciting stuff starting to happen around me. That was early 90s was kind of the beginning of cameras in the courtroom. I think um, uh, there was a Kennedy trial. There was OJ trial, of course. You know, we all started watching that stuff on CNN Um, But there was a network called Court TV that launched and they rented the studio at the editing place that I worked at. And so every day I got to see, you know, high powered attorneys and guests go into this TV studio and talk about the trials of the day. I can remember, you know, I answered telephones and made coffee and stuff. And I remember on my lunch break, I would just sit And outside the master control room, you know, they had all these rooms, control, uh, audio, you know, whatever they were. And I would just sit there and just watch all the the hectic running around. I didn't know what was going on, but I just loved all looking at all the monitors and seeing the guests walk in and out. And so I would do that on my lunch break every day. And then one day, the director of the show um, just looked at me in the hallway and he just said, You. I got to get Frank out to lunch. I need you on camera right now and I was just like frozen. I was like, "No, no, no. I don't I don't work here. I'm just watching. I answer the phones." He's like, "I know who you are. I need you on camera right now." Okay? And I was just like, "Okay." <laughs> and so, you know, they open this just wait there and I'm I don't know what the hell's happening, but you know, this the studio breaks and and Frank goes out to lunch and he's like, "Come on in here." And they have these big pedestal cameras three of them and there's some you know news people on the desk you know very official looking and he said listen here's the deal put these headphones on here's the zoom on your right here's the how you turn it you know it's really straightforward really simply you do exactly what i fucking tell you and do not deviate at all are we clear i was like yes (laughs) and you know it was really simple so he talked me through it he's like all right move your camera over to the right." push on your thumb, that's your zoom, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, stop, don't fucking move. Think. the red light goes on, you know, right. and, you know, he's like, you're doing good, hold it tight, you know, this is all in the earphones, and then the light goes off, he's like, good, how do you feel, you know, I, 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 you know. All right. frame up the guy on the left, you know, okay, okay, further left, further left, stop, Don't fucking move, (laughs) you know, and uh, I still remember his name, Dominic. And, um, you know, it's just uh, I always look back to that moment because I walked out of there. You know, first of all, I was nervous as hell, but I walked out of there just feeling like I said to myself right then and there, this business is for me. I I didn't care. I was making $13,000 a year at that point. I was just I was excited that I I found some sort of beginning of a purpose. And so, long story short, I spent a couple of years there, and uh, you know, just it didn't even get a raise after two years. And then, through uh, one of the clients there, I ended up getting a meeting and and a job eventually at this big visual effects company in Manhattan. And they uh, they worked on the Cars video, you might think. So I remember, in the '80s, where you know Rick O'Cassick is is floating around with Paulina and all that. It was just from a visual effects standpoint, from a post production standpoint, it was. It was the the main sort of game-changer uh, technique for doing multi-layered visual effects, and so I got a job working there. So many things going on around me, I had no clue, but I was, I was so happy, and it was a bump in salary, and even though I was working in the videotape library, um, I was just really, really happy to be there, and uh, I ended up spending about eight and a half years working there. I worked my way up from the bottom to be a a producer uh, of visual effects, and and the owner of the company was, you know, just a, a super smart and creative uh, man in the business, and I just watched and learned, and you know, I think ultimately just said that's the guy I think I need to learn from, and and modeled myself three years after him, you know, and and so you know, eventually I uh, I started my own visual effects post-production company, uh, about a decade later in, in 2003, which I called suspect. And I had a partner who was an operator on one of the machines and we serviced all the advertising agencies, you know, uh, the big ones in New York. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go home without turning on the TV at night and not seeing something that we worked on. I mean, we worked on all the big brands from, you know, Nike and Pepsi and, uh, just all the biggest brands that, that were advertising on TV. And uh, you know it was wonderful, we had the best clients, we had the best uh, employees, we ran a company that was fun to work at, and we worked hard and we played hard. It was very gratifying until the whole industry changed and <laughs> and the money really went away, which sort of leads me to recent years. You know, after 14 years, uh, we closed up the company. It made sense too. You know, we had 20 full-time employees, many of them making over six-figure salaries, and you know the, the budgets really just weren't there anymore in in that type of content like it used to be to support that business model that we had of very very expensive you know equipment and personnel. So we shut it down, and uh, right around then is when I started to get depressed because I got so much, I had i had passion and purpose about what I was doing with my company. And when that was gone and I lost that, I just got, you know, in, in a little bit sort of a de- depressed, I call it a mini depression, but... Yeah, I was I was looking for something I, I didn't have anymore in my life, and so I, I would just pick up the guitar, which was sort of always there, but now I was picking it up daily, and really, it just made me feel better, just playing little songs here and there, and, and then in uh, March of 2017, I, I decided I need to do an open mic. I was terrified of it, and I have a history... At, of sort of tackling fears in my life. Uh, if you ask me about the snakes, I'll tell you a little bit that, about that after. So I went down to an open mic and I was just terrified. And after I did it, I felt like this huge relief of happiness. And so you know, the next day I went and found another one and, and another one. And since I closed my company and I wasn't working at that time, I just got rabid with it. I just kept doing it. I mean, I was doing open mics five days a week or six days a week and just learning so much, and I just got addicted to it, and there, right around then is when uh, someone told me about Camp Copperhead, and so that all happened at the same time, it was this just perfect storm of new creative things that were coming into my life, and really just set me off on a on a new trajectory since then. So
1: yeah, it sounds like you kind of reinvented yourself from where you were. And I think I met you right around that time where that was all happening. But now before we get into into your album and and your music and the stuff that you're doing now, which I'm really excited to talk about, it's been hard for me to hold off all this time so far. But you're the only person I have ever known who's created a board game like, you know, we were roommates at camp and you gave me this board game for my kids. And and to this day, we pull it out and play it and have fun with it. We may not follow the rules because, you know, my youngest is four, but we have so much fun with that thing. So I'm just, I'm kind of curious just a little bit about that. And then we're going to get into your album too.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I don't have any experience whatsoever at that point. I didn't in sort of gaming or board games. I never certainly had a big interest in that. But I'll tell you, man, uh, sometimes, and and this is true with music too for me, the way I learn music, is that I learned to pay more attention to the little subconscious voice that floats around in your head. If someone would have told me that, I would have been like, man, you're crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. But I just started listening to these little things that, I imagine they happen in everybody's head. And I'll tell you exactly how that board game came about because it just I, – I sit and I analyze it lots, right? Because I had had no interest in games, no interest in inventing anything, but it just happened. And, and something happened, and, it, and I seized the, that opportunity. And so picture this. I'm going to work like every other morning. My daughter uh, was by the front door in our living room area and she was uh maybe 6 years old at that point we had a wooden tic tac toe board that somebody gave us with like x's that you could pick up and hold o's right they were like made out of wood and she didn't know how to play that game but what she was doing was just standing the x's up and balancing thing balancing them on top of each other like a kid plays with blocks and as I said goodbye to her, I noticed she had three X's in a row stacked up. And so I said, goodbye, honey. Hey, you got three X's in a row. You won straight up. And, you know, I remember her looking at me just going, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so I walked out the front door. And the first thing I said, man, that shouldn't be called Tic-Tac-Toe. That should be called tic stack toe And uh, it stuck. And so, you know, I made a... A memo in my phone. When I get to work, let's talk to some people at work. I, I had, you know, I had this company making TV commercials. So I had designers and 3D, you know, CAD artists and stuff working on staff. So as soon as I got to work, I sat with one of those artists. I say, give me give me a few minutes of your time here. Make me an X and an O in a 3D space and let's just place these things down and play a game. And so we did it. And it and it worked surprisingly well then we ran into a couple little snafus with it and, and i said you know what expand the the thing from instead of three by three let's play four by four and once we did that all those little snafus went away and the game started to take on real competitive gameplay and next thing you knew there were four or five people coming over and everyone was saying no put it there put it there you know and we were we were doing it and it was, uh, it was just coming together. And so we played with it. At that time, there was a company called Shapeways where, you know, you can send 3D objects and, you know, upload them. And then like two weeks later, they come delivered in the mail <laughs> and you actually start prototyping on your own. And it was fun. I'd always wanted to do that. And, but now there was a reason to do it. And so we were doing it. And we went ahead and we made this prototype of the game, which was amazing. We had these little ball-shaped, uh, high-powered magnets, and we buried them in little divots that with plugs on these X's and O's, so that when you just put them together, they snap together, and it was a wonderful, wonderful working prototype. And you know, I brought in somebody who knew somebody with a factory in China, and you know, he was some sort of in- invention gaming person and he said you got something really really good here but you know you got to lose the magnets it's it's you you need to be at a low price point and you'll never do it with the magnets and so you know you listen you get feedback you develop you learn and you just keep changing and applying and you and i ended up developing a new prototype with an injection molding company uh it was very professional looking and before we actually got to that level someone said to me i I knew somebody who had some shred of knowledge about the toy industry. They said, you gotta go to Toy Fair. And Toy Fair was held at the Jacob Javits Center in New York, and uh, it wasn't open to the public, but I somehow finagled my way in there. And I was just walking around, head on a swivel. A, looking for someone that's done my game, which I didn't find, and B, every time I saw a young person, I would stop and say, hey, you know, uh, what do you got here? And I would ask questions about you know, their game toy. And it turns out there was some young inventor and I would just start asking questions like, where do you go to invent something? How do you do it? And <laughs> writing down, scratching notes down. And I, I walked out of there inspired. I said to myself, I got 12 months. I'm going to be here next year with a booth that looks amazing like like that one and with a prototype and I'm going to do it. And uh, it, it turns out that was in 2000 and uh, 12, uh, and it was one of the best years we had ever had at my video company, so the money was there, and, and my partner there, we talked, and we, we went in together, so we used a little bit of the company, the company money to actually fund the prototypes and all that stuff. It was a goal, and I said, we're going to be here, and so sure enough, we worked on that all year with an app. We wanted a digital component to it and wonderful prototypes. We made videos. We made a booth with big X, giant X's and O's and tables. And it looked as as professional as any other booth in the whole place. So it was a success to get to Toy Fair. But... I didn't really have any uh, distribution, really. It was one of those things where I just crossed the finish line to get it all in a presentable mode. But I had nothing worked out on the back end. And, you know, the Toy Fair was, I think, I don't remember if it was three or four days, but the first day or two, you know, people were coming up and giving me their cards and trying to place orders, you know, for the game. And I, I just came up with some, oh, you know, where distribution is not fully set up at the moment. You know, I gave them some standard answer, but I took their name and address. Last day of the toy fair, um, all the big companies started coming down and taking a look. I guess they'd heard some things about us. And, you know, so it was Hasbro and Pressman Toys and Mattel. And, you know, I'm just having meetings with all of these people. And uh, ultimately, that's when I first heard about licensing. And so two of those companies offered a licensing deal. Where uh, they would sort of manufacture and sell the game, and I and I would be just consult on it and and get royalty. And so it sounded great because I could still focus on my my video production company and have the pros deal with the toys. And that's how it started. And you know, look, I've had certainly sort of um, roadblocks from that point on, but you know, at this it's still being sold in stores. It's with a wonderful toy company now called Melissa and Doug. Uh, which is a great partner, a uh, better partner for me. And, you know, it's, it's something I'm very proud of. And just to go back to how the story started is it, again, it was just a fleeting thought that could have come and went so fast if I just ignored it. But it was listening to that sort of little inner voice in my head and sort of taking action and... And going with it. And that's how how I invented a game. You know, at the end of the day, it's to project like anything else. You know, it has a beginning, middle and end. And, you know, you just got to figure it out.
1: I'm so glad you told that story because there's so many really great things in that. All right. Let's skip to to when we met Camp Copperhead. Uh, Now, if I remember correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you went to Camp Copperhead because Jackie Green was your, um, your one of your favorites, right? And then you kind of discovered Steve. You have a good,
0: yeah, good memory. You know, I guess going back to my musically sheltered, you know, I I should have known who Steve Earle was, and certainly I was embarrassed that I didn't know. But, you know, again, I I get an artist that I like, and I just absorb their stuff, and there's really not a lot of room for other things (laughs) I can listen to (laughs) while I'm listening to one thing. So I uh, fell in love with Jackie's music, and uh, a friend of mine... Who was on his um, fan list or email list or whatever got something saying he was going to be a guest speaker at Steve Earle's Camp Copperhead, and so that was right around the time after I closed the company, was depressed. I've done my first open mic already, and I said, "Oh, what? Go away to the Catskills, you know, and and be alone in the in the mountains, you know, learning about music." Hell yeah, it's for me, and so I went up there, and the whole ride up, you know, I just put uh, Steve Earle's music on Spotify, and you know, I just listened to as much as I could on the trip up, and just learning, man, hey, man, I, I like this music. At that point, I was like, okay, so he's a little uh, country, he's a little rock, he's like this Americana, and uh, just, I was already listening to a little John Prine and Guy Clark, and so Steve was just a logical artist that just, Fit right into that whole thing, you know, and Bruce Springsteen and all that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was, um, it was just a little bit of fate that just put me into Steve's music, and and of course then I devoured him too. So, yeah. But so glad I uh, I went I loved I got to know Steve. Uh,
1: that was a great year at Camp Copperhead. Um, uh, we both. Been... Well, I did
0: listen to another one of your past uh, episodes, so I know it wasn't your favorite year. So you're not gonna go <laughs> fool me on that one.
1: Oh, well, I said it's one of my favorites. 2014 is my favorite year, the first year, just because it was so raw. It was just so fresh and new and different and, and magical. Uh, because, you know, it was the first time and nobody knew whether it was going to ever happen again. And so it was really amazing. And there were so many amazing artists, you know, Catherine Britt and Katie Powderly, Joe Thompson, I, I'm going to forget tons of them because there were so many of us. There was Shad Blair and Michael O'Neill and, and Dale Geist and Will Dollinger and, and just all these people, uh, David Hope, and you know, all these people from around the world. And, and so that one, because it was my first, really sticks out in my, in my brain the years that we went together are also some of my favorite years. You never have a bad year there yeah, yeah, yeah. ever. Yeah. Right. You know, it's just so, always
0: wonderful meeting new people and everything is it's, it's oh, every, it, every it, well, year is special there for sure. It really
1: is. And, and it's its own year. People like Lee McCormick can be like, Hey, why didn't you mention me? You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, look, uh, Luba and Dvorak and, um, Sadie Campbell and, um, Ay, God. Yeah. I mean there's just there's just so many er, er, there's so many people there. And and when I left that camp, you know, I, I was just like, I this is I just I found my Graceland. <laughs> you know, you're just meeting people <laughs> all around the world and staying connected. I mean, the, the camp is wonderful. And uh, if you like Steve and you like that music, you have an interest in songwriting, and you know, hopefully it'll happen this year, you know, you go, it's it's wonderful. But what was equally or even better for me is the community of people that you're now uh, in touch with and camp is only like four days or whatever it is but the community lasts forever and you know i just got into diving into you know these new friends you know and conversations and posting and writing and sharing and getting feedback and i mean to me that's that's the thing that sort of helped help me learn and 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 move my sort of path forward
1: so now you decided that you wanted to do an album. And I mean, you really just pretty much made the decision and you uh, got in touch with some folks and and went to Nashville and made one, right?
0: Yeah, so I mean, once I found my songwriting process after that first year, I think the floodgates just started opening up. I mean, I I just was writing, I think I wrote 20 songs that I was happy with uh, in the first two years. So, you know, a little less than one a month. And I wrote other songs, but they just, I I gave up on them. But so about 20 that I was really, really happy with. So after my uh, company closed, I was unemployed for a bit. And then I went back to work for uh, another big company in the business. And I was miserable. It just, after working for yourself for many years um, with your own process and procedures and then going to have to work for somebody else, it just didn't work. And so... During that phase, I was I was writing, but you know, I had limited time. Mostly, I was doing open mics in New York City, as many as many of them as I can get my hands on. When that job ended, I said, "Okay, now I'm looking for work." But hey, this is a perfect time to make that album because I had 20 songs, and I just got to pick like 10 of them that I really like. So one of um, my friends from Camp Copperhead, Adam Stangle you know, I became friendly with. He uh, had a, an album or two or f- a few of them that he'd he done. And so he kept telling me, you got to go to Nashville. You got to go to Nashville. And I, I couldn't comprehend that. I was, How does a guy like me go to Nashville? I, I You know, I, I, what am I going to do there? Walk to the airport and say, hi, I'm here to do an album. I, I just it didn't compute. But he just kept saying, call my guy, call my guy, call my guy. And so uh, eventually I did. And after one little conversation, he made me feel so comfortable uh, that I just booked the flight. And, and went down there, and he and he said, "Look, let's let's not bite off more than we can chew. You know, you don't know if you're gonna like working with me. You know, it might not be a good fit. You know, forget the album. Just let's pick four songs you want to do." I was like, "Ah, that's weird. You know, I I want an album. <laughs> you know, and uh, but I took his his word on it, and we did four songs in five days. It just was magical. Everything about it. I mean, it is." I had really no money to get a hotel room. He's like sleep sleep in my house, you know, and uh, and I did, and I got along really well with the producer Steve Werbelow, down there, and he was great. And it just, it, he had a, a studio in his house, and so instead of going into the city and working in a you know big studio paying by the hour with all the all the stress that comes from that, he had a whole setup in his house. He was like, well, here's the plan for today. You know, we're going to eat dinner, we're going to, you know, do vocals, and we're going to take, you know, an hour break, and I want you to have a couple of shots of, uh, of whiskey, and we're going to do takes again into the night. We're going to do looser takes, you know? And so he just come up with this plan, but having the, um, the ability to, to do it whenever we wanted to at the pace that he wanted to, instead of having to book time at a studio, was the way to go for me. It took all the pressure and stress off of what recording could be like under uh, time constraints. And uh, anyway, we did those, those uh, four songs, and I was just in awe how amazing those songs sounded and how the musicians really brought them to life. And we loved working together. And so I said, you know, hey, uh, what do you think about doing those additional six songs? I mean, do you think I need to go home and then get a flight back? You know, he's like, maybe I'll just stay. And so he said, let me make a couple phone calls, and all the musicians were going back on tour in another, like, two weeks or something, so there was a perfect window of time to do it now, and so I ended up changing my flight on that last day, and I ended up staying 14 days, and we cut 10 songs in 14 days, you know, with rough mixes, and then, you know, he, he took another month or so to get the mixes right, and then the mastering process, but it all came together and we released the album in mid-july of last year so it's it's basically about a, a little about a year now that it's been out
1: so and it's a great album I love hearing your songs you know I got to hear you know some of your stuff before you recorded it and you know since you put it on the album uh, very similar to with Tom surzak who was on last week it's so uh Pleasing to me to be able to see the progression and the and the difference and the choices that are made in those kinds of things, and it's a great album. And I, and I of course I am biased because you, you did give me a credit on here <laughs> as well. But it is a great album. Do you have a favorite off of this album? Like I, the album's Weather Vane. We'll put links to all your social stuff in the show notes and and so forth. So we'll get to that. But do you have a favorite cut on the album?
0: You know I I don't. Um... You know, I, people always ask that or, you know, even what's your favorite song. I, I, just, I just don't. You know why? I think it's just because music is just so emotional and, you know, it depends on the mood I'm in. You know, if mm. I'm in sort of a little bit of a reflective mood about something, then a song that that's, has those themes in it might be my favorite that I connect to it at that time. And I don't. I mean, there there are songs I end up playing out live more and those songs I think maybe just, translate better to one uh guitar in an acoustic setting and harmonica so you know songs like Caroline and Thunder Mountain um and Weather Vane are, are songs that I sort of play frequently out and it's funny cuz a few months went by and I haven't listened to my album in a while and I popped it on in the guitar and I you know in the car and I was just like man you know wow you know that song you know and it just brings me right back you know to to those places and so yeah. Yeah, and and every one of these songs has just some sort of little bits and pieces of me, whether they're about me or whether they're not about me, you know, they're just little threads of of emotions that I felt either through myself or through somebody else. Yeah, so don't have a favorite, but I uh, I can relate. They can all be my favorite if I'm really in the mood to listen to listen to them. Yeah,
1: so. so let me ask you this: I know you did some press when this came out. You know, you did some some interviews and and you've played out a lot, especially before COVID happened. You know, you were playing nonstop, playing out. What has the response been for the stuff that you've played out? Do the fans seem to have a favorite?
0: Yeah, Caroline seems to be a, a favorite. Thunder Mountain uh, is is requested a lot too, especially if there's any veterans in the uh, in the audi- audience. Title track Weather Vane. Yeah,
1: you know, Thunder Mountain is a really really great tune. I and I personally think it's it's one of your best. It hits great themes, and you've got some lines in there that are just really well written that that I really enjoy from that perspective. Uh, and then you've got some in there that. That they're well written but they really how do i say this they're well written in a blue collar sort of way in that it really punches you in the in the throat when you hear it and you're like oh i wasn't really expecting that here you know kind of thing but it really makes the point it's a great tune and there's there's not a bad cut on your album how did thunder mountain come about is there a story behind that
0: yeah, I mean it's it's very similar to the uh, the, the gaming story, the tic tac toe thing, where I just sort of sort of started to learn how to pay attention to my subconscious mind. And one of my songwriting, my part of my process is, is I will just end up getting some sort of little thing that's rattling around my head, and it usually happens somewhere between like three and six in the morning, where I'll just wake up, I'll either have a melody or a couple of words floating around in my head, and I've learned. No matter how tired I am, because I don't sleep with my phone in my bedroom, to get up, walk to this office that we have in the house where we charge our phones and hum into a a voice memo or jot down any words. Try to get whatever I had in my head down into recordable form and then run back to bed and, and go to sleep. Because, you know, your body says, You'll oh, I'll remember this when I wake up, you know, and no, that's I've lost yeah. so much good stuff by by believing that you won't but anyway the story here was i woke up one morning at somewhere between three or four in the morning and i had a line in my head that said frank's a badass in his corvette he used to keep the white walls clean clear as day ran in it you know and i wrote it down frank's a badass in his corvette like to keep the white walls clean now the interesting thing about that is i was sleeping and i don't know where it came from i don't but i do know when I was a child, and I told you about that kid Tommy down the street who used to play the drums and the whole neighborhood would hear, his father was named Frank, and his father was a ex-Marine. And I knew that because he had a, a round Marine sticker on the back of this Corvette, this 1981 or 82 Corvette he had. And uh, he really never drove it. It was like a showpiece car. And uh, I remember looking in on the garage, and he was sitting on the ground With a a cup of white paint, and he was painting the Goodyear words on the on the on the white walls that were cracking after a bunch of years or whatever. And we just used to laugh at that. We used to think, you know, he didn't drive the car, but you know, he's sitting here. Just drive the car, you know. And I'd never thought about that. You know, that was in the 80s. I'd never thought about that for you know 40 years or whatever. (laughs) But somehow in my sleep. A line came to me and said, Frank's a badass in his Corvette. And he likes to keep the white walls clean. And I wrote it down. And so, you know, uh, songwriting process for me is is a very sort of uh, fleeting and additive sort of thing. So I, I wrote that down. I forgot about it. A day or two later, I uh, remember parking my car in my driveway. And I, as I stepped out of the car... I just this thought came into my head, Thunder Mountain, and I was just like, "What the hell, is Thunder Mountain?" I don't know. It sounds freaking cool. You know, it kind of sounds a little like Thunder Road, but man, I don't know. You know, they said that Moses was on top of the mountain and boom, you know, <laughs> crashed and saw God up there. I, it just I had this image of Thunder Mountain, you know, and just this very impactful name of something, and I, you know, I wrote it down. And so, you know, maybe a day later, I came back and I looked at what I'd written down. I said, you know, let me put Thunder Mountain in Google. And so I did. And what one of the things that came up was um, a racetrack in Syracuse, New York, it was called Thunder Mountain. And so I was like, oh, okay, cars. Oh wait, I got that other thing, Frank's Badass, the White Walls. You know, ah, maybe Thunder Mountain's the title of that song. And and Frank's a badass, who the hell's Frank? Oh, he's a Marine. And so, you know, I just start writing these thoughts down. And so, you know, that particular day, I sort of, you know, came up with a verse of the song and, and then put it down and I ended up telling this story about this, um, this uh, sort of gung-ho, uh, everything going for him. You know, he's got the girl, he's got the car, he loved to race cars, he's the king of the track. You know, all is good, but he, he's a badass, and he enlisted, and he went to war, and uh, you know, got his legs blown off, and um, you know, and then he's sort of, you know, just when he's home after the after fighting, you know, just thinking back on decisions he's made in his life and reflecting on it, and and the song's a little bit ambiguous. It's it's I've written in a way that you know. It, you know, I didn't want to tell anybody, you know, um, how he really felt. You know, does he, re- did he, did he regret his decisions? Is he happy with his decisions, regardless of what happened? I sort of let it, left it a little bit ambiguous for, for the listener to kind of figure out on their own. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 a story about um, sacrifice and sort of living with uh, the choices that you make in life.
1: thoroughly enjoy it. One of the nice things that I see in in your writing. I remember reading an interview with Bob Dylan years ago. I Bob Dylan was my Springsteen if you will. And you know, I devoured everything. I had, you know, all 38 of his albums at the time when he had only 38 out. <laughs> Something that he said I, I was I was actually reading an interview about a, a song that he wrote that a lot of people don't know. The important part that I wanted to bring to light here was he said That was a song written about someone else's experience. I tried to get inside their experience and, and write it from that perspective. He then went on to say, I wish that songwriters would do more of that these days. So that's always been something that I have looked for in people's music ever since then. And that's one of the things that I really like about, especially Thunder Mountain, is you're trying to get into other people's realities and bring their stories up, just bring some some view to it. And that's a that's an amazing thing for a songwriter to be able to do. Tell us a little bit about Weathervane, because it is the title track. Tell me a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Weathervane uh, is is basically a story about a, a traveling musician who has uh, been everywhere, he's seen everything. You know, he goes from one town to the next town. And, um, you know, he's got just a bunch of stories, and he's enjoyed his uh, his travels, and he's met many, many people. But uh, he's sort of—I chose Weathervane because, uh, for the title track of the album because it's— um, he basically goes, the metaphor is he just goes wherever the wind takes him. You know, where are we going today? We're we going to go south, we're we going to go east, we're we going to go west. What are we going to do? And he meets people and has a great time doing it. Um, but at the end of the day, he's sort of missing something that sort of um, connects him with family and uh, a place to live. You know, he's a troubadour. You know, he, his home is the road. And so there's there's really something lost um, that he's sort of yearning for is to sort of get back that um, the roots that he's sort of given up. Um, I think it's a story of every sort of musician. that's talk about Steve Earle, you know, it's kind of a story like that, you know, I mean, you sit down with Steve and he'll, he'll talk your ear off about <laughs> this show, that show, this town, that town, you know, um, but the end of the day is, you know, he spends most of his time on the road. stage well wasn't always fun to be the talk of everyone but she shined just like the sun so I asked her name with her vein she grew up on this squally grounds not too far from a mining town where her daddy was beaten down and he did the same so she left and went to find something other than her kind. And in time, she blew my mind, but I ran away. Weather vain. So, like you said before about you know the Bob Dylan thing, you know I didn't have to experience that for myself to be able to sort of write about that. And for some reason, that's that's always come a little bit easy to me. I've always liked people watching. I always like making assumptions of what that person's going through whether they're right or wrong just based on (laughs) what I'm seeing you know I get a little story in my mind about you know and and a lot of times I've you know I I couldn't have been more wrong about the person you know you make these judgments about people but I my mind wanders into like well what's that story about you know I have a a song called Better Man um, about a man who's sort of wasn't faithful with his girl and is sort of reflecting on that and and feeling remorseful and regret. Now I've never cheated on on my wife ever, but I knew what it felt like though, I, just from from I guess hearing stories of other people. And so when I wrote Better Man, I just I hit on the things that I I know would make me feel guilty, you know, through yeah. through the eyes of someone else. And so yeah, it's it's uh. I don't I, I don't think about it. It's just, it, for me, it's, it's easy to put myself in someone else's shoes, you know.
1: Well, I do want to ask you about one other cut on the album here, and that's the last cut on the album, Good Woman. Is there a story behind that one?
0: Good Woman was the first song I ever wrote, and uh, it, it is about my wife. I just remember walking to a doctor's appointment in Manhattan, and Good Woman title just came to me, and I immediately thought, yeah, I have a good woman, you know, and... And I stopped and pulled out my phone, and and I literally wrote, "I have a good woman to waste my time." I got plenty of thoughts around my mind. How did I get here? <laughs> oh, uh, what sets me free is I got a good woman uh, sitting right by me, or something, you know, like that. And and then I put the phone away. I took about five more steps, and I wrote the rest of the song. <laughs> so the, the whole song just came together on the street, walking to a doctor, by me paying attention to the little subconscious voice in my head. And, and taking action and writing something down. And that literally, that whole song was written in, in less than five minutes uh, on the spot. And I wish everything came out of me that fast, but you know, uh, lots of songs that just like I said, it's fleeting and they're additive So I'll just get one step further one day, put it away, come back a couple days later, get another step further. And some come together quick and some don't, but uh, I love that song. Yeah. And my, my wife loves it too. So. I got a good woman to waste my time I got plenty of thoughts running around my mind How did I get here What sets me free I got a good woman standing right by me But There have been times when I couldn't see Ahead of me oh I was blinded and all it takes is a twist of fate and I appreciate just what I got here cause I got a good woman
1: we'll put links up to all your stuff so that people can get to it in the show notes. But let me ask you this, uh weather vein still available on like iTunes and digital platforms and things like that.
0: Right. Oh Yeah. Yeah, it's everywhere uh, you get digital music from.
1: Okay, cool. So if you do want to get a copy, and I highly recommend you do, you can do that on iTunes or any of those digital places where you can find it. I mean, if you really need a CD, I'm sure it's in that format as well somewhere. So um, we can definitely get you hooked up there. To kind of bring us up to, to date a little bit more, now that we're all dealing with this global pandemic, that has effectively, at least fairly effectively killed the music industry, independent artists and their venues to make money. And it has been uh, as challenging for them as it has been for any group out there. Um, And so, you know, you reinvented yourself into this mold and now you're faced with something that no musician has ever faced in our living history. So how has, how has that been? How, how have you dealt with that?
0: Well, I want to be clear that my I certainly don't think I've I have reinvented myself. I'm in process of reinventing myself. <laughs> Ever since I met you and it's 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 still evolving. You know, I at one point I I had said, "You know what? I I just think I got to give this music thing a shot. I got to figure out how to make money, you know, doing it." Which is not easy, you know. Making money as a musician is difficult. But you know, I remember writing things down on a piece of paper. It's like, okay, I can teach music lessons. I could play bars. I could play restaurants. Uh, I heard playing assisted living homes. Uh, you know, you can make money there. You know, I made this list of, of how can you make money, and so I started doing those things. Getting into these assisted living homes, playing for the elderly people living there, uh, was was difficult. But I I managed in the course of a few months to start playing almost every day all around uh, Long Island. You know, there's about 100 of those uh, facilities on Long Island. And um, so it was actually working out, and then the pandemic hit, and all of those gigs just uh, disappeared overnight. One of the things that I had left out from that list was selling songs for sync for TV and movies and, and all that. And a really good friend of mine had put me in touch with this woman named Kathy Heller. You're laughing.
1: Oh, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That good friend is you, (laughs) Elliot. Yeah, and so Kathy has a a book and a podcast called... uh, um, uh, Don't
1: Keep Your Day Job.
0: Don't Keep Your Day Job, yeah. And she taught a free five-day songwriting class. And, you know, you hooked me up with that. And so I... I went and gave that my all in those five days and, and paid attention as much as I could and took notes and everything. And I just believed in uh, what she was really selling, which is if you concentrate and learn this craft and treat it not like a hobby but like a business and you learn how to do it you, and you stick with it, you will be successful with it. So I, uh, she gave away these little gifts every night when you do the homework and turn the homework assignments in that she gave you every night. And so sometimes it would be a a gift card or something. But on the last day, uh, she gave away a half scholarship to the six-month mentorship program where you really got in-depth. Being that I sort of won this scholarship and it it took that money, it really helped me out. I felt like it was almost fate because I I wasn't going to... uh, do the six month thing. I just wasn't in the financial position to do so. And when I won that scholarship, I was like, I, I talked to my wife. and I was like, I have to do this. So I've now we're we're just rounding the end of this class now, six months later, and I have um, five songs. One of them is done. Uh, five songs in production that are all sort of writing for specifically for selling them for TV commercials, TV shows or films and stuff. And so I have now my artist side, where I just write things that I find, you know, I want to write about. And then I have this sort of business side where I apply all these principles and with the intention of trying to pitch a song, you know, for a particular brand or something. And so, uh, yeah, I've uh, the course was wonderful. Like anything, it, it takes a little time and ramp up, but I'm so excited about the process. And how it works, and even though I'm writing outside my genre into things that are a little bit more uh, pop-oriented, uh, I'm I'm really enjoying it. You know, I love sort of solving you know little emotional not problems, but sort of coming up with um, music that sort of says something maybe about a brand. So I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I'm super you.
1: excited for you, man. That's really awesome. The Sink Keepers is a—that's really her sweet spot in in all the different things that she does. And there is a a common Kathy uh, Heller thread that goes through my podcast because she was a mentor of mine uh, as well. I'm gl- I'm glad that worked out for you because you never know what's going to happen when you when you tell somebody, hey, you know, maybe check this out or whatever. You know, it can go well or badly. So you n- you never really know. But now. Um, before before I let you go, and I want to be cognizant of your time. We've been talking for a while now, and I really appreciate the time. I really do. Tell me a little bit about your dance and play stuff, regardless of our political views and and how we see the world and so forth. I think we need a little bit more joy in our lives, a little bit more dancing and, and so forth. So uh, if you'd tell me a little bit about that project, uh, I, I would be grateful.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny. It, you know, in Kathy's class, you know, she talks about, Uh, Making mistakes and being sloppy and give yourself permission to be sloppy and she would just say just just write a song That's just fun and uplifting and blah 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 and you know, so when I sat down to kind of do that homework assignment I, I, I Picked these sort of chords that I I used to use when I would go to a live gig and I would tune up Exercise my hands. I had this little thing that I made up and I said let me play with these Maybe I can make a song out of that and so I started to rearrange them a little bit differently. And when I started playing it, I was just dancing in place. Like, and I don't dance. I'm the guy that like when we go to a wedding or a bar mitzvah, my wife tries to pull me up to the dance floor. I'm like, no, 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 I'll sit back here, you know. But I was just, I was trying to put words to it, and I was, I was like, man, I just what a groove going on here. I said this, this just should just be called dance in place. And so I, I titled the song "Dance in Place." And because I was moving and dancing and, and the title was now Dance in Place. So I was like, man, I don't even know if I need words on this thing. I think I could hear like lead uh, guitar and keyboards and all this stuff going. I think, I think that the instrumentation is going to take center stage. And I think, you know, we were all in quarantine at that point. So my mind was thinking like, you know, maybe this is a way to get people around the world to dance together. And then, um I had these sort of inspirational uh, thoughts. well, how, how could the world come together because the George Floyd thing was going on? and it's and it just seemed like this country and this world is just everybody is so disconnected from one another. Uh, I don't remember a time in my life that's that's been this messed up, you know, politically. <laughs> you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It just it just everything felt like was pointing towards. I needed this song needs to try to bring people together. And I and I and music is a universal language and so that's one of the reasons I was like, nah, I don't even know if I want lyrics on this thing. I just want the music to make somebody feel good whether they're in Africa or New Zealand or here or wherever and just get people to sort of express themselves by dancing in place and sort of holding up, you know, positive messages. And so we, we, I went ahead and I, I asked the drummer who uh, worked on my album, who's down in Nashville, if he would record a drum track, and, and which he did. And then a friend of mine's son uh, was a bass prodigy and and you know sort of a producer as well. And so he uh, helped, put, you know, did the mix and did the bass track and you know co-produced it with me and everything. And and it just sort of came together and. Once I had a rough mix, I sent it out to everyone I knew on my social media and, you know, people just said, I'll dance, I'll dance, I'll dance. And, you know, so using the technology with Zoom and, you know, just iPhones, people shooting themselves, you know, I just started to get, Man, I think I had like 60 60 submissions of of video being sent to me to this song that I had. And, uh, you know, I asked a a good buddy of mine who, uh, this video editor at one of these, big companies in Manhattan, and so he was happy to help me do it. Everyone just came together to do it, and uh, so I released that um, a few weeks back as a a video of people dancing, and and it's on Spotify and Apple Music and everything there too, and so it it was a nice project that sort of took on its own uh, direction in the course. I didn't try to make it be something, it just sort of led me to where it wanted to be, I'm very happy with how it came out and the collaboration, you know, it's, it's a feel good piece. You know, you can't watch it and not smile, you know.
1: Yeah, it's a great piece, man. I mean, like the video is, 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 is and it's a fun song. And I mean, you just, it is, it kind of gives you that thing. It reminds me, I don't know if you, I remember some of the early days on the internet based just because of what I do, uh, but there was a guy that did this dancing thing. It was called Where in the Hell is Matt? If you ever get a chance, you should check that out, the original one. He's done subsequent ones since then. But the original one he did, and I don't remember how many years ago, 10 or 15 years ago now, was just him dancing, doing this little jig thing that he does all over the world wherever he was visiting and then he got a, a sponsor saw that he was doing that and they sponsored him to go around the world and so he was just and he went to places like Rwanda you know where just horrific things happened and he would just go stand and dance and all these little kids would come up and dance with him you know and, and he would go to, to India and, and and dance with people there and it was exactly the kind of thing you're talking about where music is this universal language and it didn't matter. The politics didn't matter. What mattered was the people and coming, you know, being able to, to see each other as people. And, and so I'm super pumped about your, your dance in place because it's just, it's such a great, it's a, such a great thing. And, and I, and man, is there anything better than being able to bring people together, especially in the, and especially here in the U.S. where things are more divisive now than they have possibly ever been. Yeah. Uh, and it the- just
0: always seems like there's just, you know, wherever you get your news from, it just, it just seems like there's, you're bombarded with all this bad news you know, all the time. And it's, it's, yeah. it's just too much. I mean, I, I stopped just even watching the news, you know, or even getting my news every day, just because it's just depressing. You read all the headlines and you're like, man, man, we're we going down the toilet fast here. And, uh, and so that, That song to me was a little bit like therapy. It was just like, hey, come on, you know, let's dance together and let's just be happy. And it really, it just sort of brought me back up, you know. Uh, yeah. put a smile back on my face.
1: Well, it's, it's it's a great tune. Well, thank you for being on the show, man. I Thanks really really appreciate me. it. Um, you know, you've you've always supported the podcast. You've been a plain ordinary dragon for as long as I've known you. I can't thank you enough for being here. It's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Is there do you have any parting words that you want to leave with anybody or
0: Well, yeah, sure. I mentioned uh I guess I mentioned to you earlier. I said ask me about the snakes. So, I might as well as long as I came back to me. You know, when I was a kid, I had a phobia, a horrible phobia of of snakes. And I can remember waking up in the middle of the night, uh, many, many nights and thinking that snakes were gonna get me, you know, they're under my bed. So no matter what time it was, I would stand on my bed and I would take a running two-step leap off my bed so I could jump as far away from the snakes as I could. And uh, I'd never seen a snake or anything, but you know, fast forward now to when I went to SUNY Albany and I was, you know, uh my first year of college second year of of college and this guy comes to introduce himself and he walks in my room and he's got a snake around his neck and that was the first time i'd ever seen a snake in real life and he's like hey man how you doing i'm mike and and i just i just froze and every single hair on my whole body just stood up and i think i just screamed at the top of my lungs and jumped on my bed like you know like a, a it's just a scared kid and I was just like, get out, get out, get out. You know, an uncontrollable, you know, fear. And he's like, all right. You know, it was, it was a little garter snake. It wasn't like it was anything, but I was completely terrified. And I remember it took like hours for me to just get my composure back. I was just rocked from within. And then uh, I remember a couple of weeks later, I was at the, the mall with my roommate. And um, we were in the pet store and I was just found myself transfixed at a garter snake in a glass tank. And I was it was the first time I was like inches from the thing. And I was just watching it move. And I was just, how does this thing move with no legs? And I'm watching the muscles all move. And I was just in awe. And he, my, my buddy said, just buy it, man, it's 20 bucks. And I just felt this sense of empowerment that I'm now an adult, I'm at college. I have $20 in my wallet. And I'm terrified of this thing. And I just went on a whim and I just bought the thing. And so we brought it back to my dorm room. You know, it comes with like two clips on the tank. I bought like four sets of extra clips. And I got home to my room and I had clips all around each edge. And I put my weights on top of it. It's funny, it was comical. I had this little tank and I had weights on top of it, clips all around it, and then books on top of the weights. I mean, it looked comical. I had stuff you know, piled yay high, and I slept with a flashlight, and I remember the first, you know, few weeks, I just wake up in a panic in the middle of the night, shine the flashlight to make sure it was still in there, and it didn't get out, and over the course of uh, six months, I had a friend come and feed it, and while I'd clean the tank, they would hold the snake, and eventually I would pet the tail, eventually I'd hold the tail, and eventually I got to the point where I would hold the snake. And, you know, it, it took about six months, but I, I literally got over a phobia uh, that was so bad in six months. And, and then I gave the snake away to somebody, and I, I bought a, a more beautiful, colorful snake called the corn snake as a baby that I saw. And that snake ended up having some sort of um, parasite, and it died. And uh, so that led me on this sort of, well, why did it die? And so I started reading up on on reptile parasites and things. And and then I was on a vacation in, in Florida and I walked into a pet store and, and I was talking to the salesperson and, and the salesperson said, hey, I got this great snake, you got to see it. And he pulled out this boa constrictor and put it in my hands. And I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And so I bought the snake and flew home to, to, to New York with it in my sweatshirt pocket on the airplane. Without telling them that I had a ball constrictor in my pocket, which was was crazy, and and so slowly this this fear turned into an obsession. And I used to volunteer some time at a snake breeder uh, on Long Island, and he bred these uh, huge Burmese pythons, which is one of the largest snake in, snakes in the world, and they were albino. And for working for him, he he. He sold me a male and a female albino uh, Burmese python breeding pair, and I grew them up as fast as I could by feeding them a lot to get them to be over ten feet in eighteen months. And they were fast-growing snakes, you know. I had them as a breeding project, and so I, I bred these these snakes. I think I had 35 eggs or something in 18 months and the female was like as fat as my leg and you know probably by the time I sold her, she was like 15 feet, you know, and and they were sort of angry snakes. <laughs> I mean, they were they weren't pets. They were like, you know, they were eating all the time. And uh, if I put it down, <laughs> and went to go into my, you know, kitchen and grab something and come back, it's almost like the snake saw me from the first time and would start, you know, snapping, biting at me and stuff. So yeah, it was just this really weird thing. And so before I knew it, I had uh, I had about 50 snakes. Uh, after I bred those and I had a bunch of boa constrictors and all this and I lived in this uh, two-bedroom apartment with a roommate who had another bedroom there and my room I lived with like 50 snakes and I was always cleaning poop and feeding and and, uh, it got too much at one point so I sold everything and I bought a a Harley Davidson motorcycle and I was snake free (laughs) For, for many, many years until I had kids, and then we ended up buying a, a snake, which I still have. But anyway, <laughs> I wanted to tell you that story because it's really, for me, it's about getting over your fears, whatever they are. And just like I was you know, terrified to do my first open mic, uh, I feel like life is about overcoming whatever fears you have. It doesn't matter if it's a food fear or whatever. It's like whatever it is. You know, I always challenge myself to get through that fear. Speaking in public, playing in public, I, I, I almost—I live my life now by feeling I, I need to scare myself all the time, and that's how I think I, I'm growing as as an artist. Um, And just a person in general. So that's why I wanted to tell you that, just to talk about fear and and to embrace it, Uh, fear and failure.
1: That's a great story. Thank you for telling it to us. Uh, I would have definitely missed out. Uh, Well, thank you again for the time, man. I really appreciate it. It was a great interview and I love learning all of the the new things and hearing about your journey.
0: Thank you so much, Elliot. It was a pleasure. Thank you again.
1: So many good nuggets of wisdom in what Rob said. Here are three things that stuck out to me. First, his statement about nobody learns to sing by reading books and learning music theory. Wow. Like that is so applicable in life, not just in music. You learn by doing and trying. Many years ago, one of my mentors in sales would say, no one makes any money until action is taken and product is sold. You can know everything about anything. However, if you don't take action, if you don't turn that knowledge into applied knowledge, you will never leverage it to balance the scales of success and happiness or purpose in your favor. Next, he learned to tap into his intuitive mind, his gut feeling, if you will, or as he puts it, that little subconscious voice and ignore the static all around it. He found a way to have clarity of purpose by following that voice. The last thing I wanted to touch on was overcoming fear. Rob has gotten into a regular practice of getting out of his comfort zone by facing his fear. It seems almost like a challenge to him from what I can tell. Think about the confidence it would give you to do something you're uncomfortable doing. Something possibly that scares you it's hard to believe how amazing you feel after trying something out of your comfort zone, you know, like remote podcasting or podcasting at all. Well, don't forget to sign up for the Plain Ordinary Dragon newsletter. You can do that at HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash com forward slash subscribe uh, or just com forward slash subscribe. And if you sign up for the newsletter or share this episode on social media uh, with the hashtag WeatherVane and hashtag plain ordinary dragon. Either any one of those, either share it on on Facebook or or Instagram or Twitter, or whatever, whatever it is, use the hashtag plain ordinary dragon and hashtag weathervane. And uh, or if you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet, do that and you'll be entered and you have a chance to win one of Rob's CDs. And let me tell you, it's a good CD. You should definitely get it. Even more so if it's free. Thank you so much for being a part of our our family here at Plain Ordinary Dragon. And as always, you might be plain and you might be ordinary, but you are a dragon. You can do amazing things and we can't wait to hear your voice in this world that so badly needs it. There were no answers there Where are the answers? See? Where are the hopes I need? Answer.